We're continuing our series on the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. The series title is, What is Your Heart Attitude? And last week we explored Matthew 5, 1 through 6. And today we're going to be exploring Matthew 5, 7 through 12. The title of the message is, Your Reward is Great in Heaven. So if you have your Bibles with with you, why don't you take a moment and turn to Matthew 5, verses 7 through 12. I'm reading ESV. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And as as we know, Matthew 5 explores the opening, if you like, Uh, comments, reflections, words for us to capture of Jesus' own emerging ministry with his disciples. And he's taken them up a mountainside. He's now speaking to them very intimately, very personally. He's leaning in and showing them his heart. He's revealing what is on his heart for his disciples. These words are applicable to you and I today as as, as critically and as crucially as they were to the disciples when Jesus spoke to him. To them. So verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Well, this is a verse that's open to any amount of abuse. People will take advantage of that, saying, oh, you're just going to have to put up and shut up. Ever heard that phrase? People will tell you that regardless of the circumstances, you just have to carry on doing whatever it is that you're doing. But if you take a moment to actually understand Jesus' life, we capture something very, very different because Jesus lived out exactly what he preached. He didn't just tell us how we should act, behave, communicate towards or with one another. He actually showed us. He didn't just show us or tell us the truths about God. He lived them out. Amen? And if we read the Gospels today, that's what Jesus would want us to do. He wants us to be very, very clear that we live out what he teaches us. We don't just know about it, we don't just repeat it, we don't just hear it, but we actually live it out. Jesus himself loved his enemies. He loved those who wanted to kill him. He even went further and he did good to those that hated him. He blessed those that cursed him. He had everything stripped away from his own life and was ultimately put to death. And yet in the end, The words that we all know. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Very powerful thoughts as we go through this journey this afternoon together. Because Jesus' actions put into practice what what he taught about the Father's love. And it's to love the way that the Father loves. The first part of verse 7 is crucial. It's something that we need to embrace in our own lives because it describes 
what God calls us to do. God himself loves those who even hate him. He knows that. He forgives. He sent Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. That is the basis of our response. That should form the nucleus of our own attitude, our own heart, what we decide to carry and communicate to those that persecute you, those that challenge you, those that need God's mercy. And I'm not talking about the person that stole your seat on the tube to come over here this afternoon. I'm not talking about the person that may have taken the parking space at the supermarket yesterday when you went to get your family food shopping. This is ultimately the standard that we are called to. And it's a question for us this afternoon. Is it a standard that we want to attain? Is it a standard that we believe that we can obtain? Remember this, you yourself have been shown mercy, not judgment. How did that make you feel? What did it cultivate? What did it foster in your own heart when someone showed you mercy and not judgment? Jesus lived his entire life with mercy. When others decided for judgment, wrath, revenge, Jesus was moved with compassion and kindness and care and concern. Even when people shunned him, even when people rejected him, Jesus still reached out. And yet often that's not our response. Well, he, they didn't text me back. I'm not going to go and see them today. And so it's a, something that we need to think about in our journey. Because Jesus was welcoming and listened to every person that he encountered. And even, like I said, on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. That, friends, right there is the perfect answer of what mercy actually is. Mercy is when someone does not give us what we deserve. It's when someone chooses to forgive, if you like, being let off the hook, being absolved of the consequences of our actions or inactions in the given moment. Because when we choose to forgive, we're demonstrating Christ in our lives. And so I want us to take a moment this afternoon before we move on to the next beatitude to think about our own life. Think about the last person or the first person that showed you mercy. Think about the person or persons that have forgiven you, loved you, loved on you when you didn't necessarily deserve that love. Given to you, whether it be financial, time, effort, prayer, support, ministry, whatever, perhaps without any expectation of receiving anything in return from you. They showed you kindness, perhaps, even when you were supremely ungrateful. How did it make you feel? What did it generate in your heart? Did it stir you to have a, a moment of self-assessment in your own heart about the condition of your own heart, about what you're carrying, about what's in your own heart. Because I'm a firm believer, what we carry, we communicate. It will always emerge one way or another in some capacity. And so if we're carrying disappointment, you're going to verbalize it in some way. If you're carrying ingratitude, you're going to verbalize it in some way. If you're harboring unforgiveness, it's going to come out of your mouth in some way. And yet, so clearly, Jesus is speaking so clearly, so eloquently, but also very, very simply to us and calling us to be that type of person. It's very simple 
yet very, very profound. Who in your life today needs you to show them mercy? There will be someone. There will be someone in your life today. The name has probably already sprung forth in your heart that you need to show mercy to. Anyone that you need to pick up the phone to and communicate forgiveness. What about compassion? Often we're not compassionate people as Christians. We're a bit hard-nosed. We think we know the Bible. We think we know God. And yet, Jesus' entire ministry was marked by compassion. Where you see something or someone and your heart breaks, you're moved to the point of action by the compassion that is stirred in your heart. But often it's under layers and layers and layers of disappointment, anger, frustration, ingratitude, unforgiveness. It's not easy, right? It's going to cost you something. It costs Jesus everything. But he calls us to be like him this afternoon, both individually but also corporately as a church. If we can't show compassion to one another here in the church, the people that don't yet know Jesus will not step foot into this building, will not enter into any dialogue, any conversation, any sort of relationship or friendship with us because they are seeing the way that we act with one another. Verse 8, the second beatitude that we're exploring this afternoon. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, Jesus is getting pretty serious at this point. Who exactly are the pure in heart? And moreover, if we are not in that group of people who are the pure in heart, how do we get there? <laughs> it's a conundrum for us. Now, we often think that we might be pure in heart, and if you think you're pure in heart, it's unlikely that you actually are, <laughs> because if you are genuinely pure in heart, you won't see yourself as someone who is pure in heart. But what is purity? It's today's society, it's an elusive standard for a Christian or a non-Christian. It's something that we can try and aspire to, but we will never actually attain. The dictionary definition of the word pure is free from anything of a different, inferior, or contaminating kind. Now that helps build a bit of a framework for us to reflect and consider as we go forward here this afternoon. But let's not fool ourselves. This appears deceptively simple. It is both impossible and possible to see God and to know God. Purity is always given by God. When we see it right through Scripture, purity is called for by Jesus. It's called for in the church. It's called for to, in our bodies, in our minds, in our speech, conduct, every area of our life. Purity is called for. Jesus, at the Last Supper, what was he doing? He was making people clean. He was healing people. He was supporting people. He was washing the disciples' feet. His whole life was marked by purity in what he spoke, in everything that he communicated. Purity is not something that is guaranteed or something that we can earn. I think on a personal level, like one of the biggest frustrations for me is any time I attend a wedding 
And usually the reception afterwards, the, the, the husband will usually start with something like, oh, this is the gift that God has given me uh, because I've been so pure in my sexual walk with Jesus over the last 10 years or 20 years or whatever it is. And I sit there, I'm like, no, you would be pure in your body, in your speech, in your conduct for Jesus, irrespective of whether you got married to that person or not, right? We don't do purity with God in order to gain something. We live it out in our lives. We live it out in our hearts because it's what Jesus did. It's what Jesus calls us to do. But we can't allow the contamination to creep in. Now, let's be clear. He says pure in heart, i.e. to the very core of your being. So just in your speech, just in how we communicate with one another is insufficient. The reason is that purity is what ultimately will be connected to us by the depth of our relationship with Jesus. And so however pure you are in your body, in your mind, in what you do, is a probably a really good reflection of the intimacy and the relationship that you possess with Jesus. Now this is fairly basic stuff for us, but it's something that we need to capture today so that we can move forward day by day, week by week, month by month, knowing that we are cleansed, knowing that we are pure in everything that we carry and everything that we communicate. Yes, it's impossible to see God, but God will always turn around and show himself to us as we attain, reach for, maintain, and affirm the standard that he gives us here. Now, if it's impossible for us to be pure in heart, then we need to allow the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit to purify us each and every day. All things are possible through God. Purity of heart will always emerge one way. What you focus everything in your life on. Provokes another question. How do we steward our time? What are we looking at? And I'm not necessarily referring to the internet. I'm just saying in general terms, what do we give our focus and our attention to? Because if our focus and our attention is on the mainstream media, our job, the internet, the newspapers, social media, these things are of the world. It's not the word of God that is pure, that is infallible, that will cleanse, that will renew and will redeem every single part of our lives. Every single day, there's going to be things and people taking up our time, busyness. The question is, what are we prepared to get busy focusing on? Because if we truly focus on God, his kingdom, and his word, we will become people who are pure in heart. But that has to be the overarching focus, not, the, not on the sideline, not after a long day at work, not after doing 50,000 other things. No, it has to become the chief cornerstone of our lives. Then we will be become pure in heart. Our hearts must be orientated towards the things of God. We cannot get mixed up in things that are not godly because then the contamination creeps in. Then the mixture creeps in. And the very thing that we were trying to avoid, we end up affirming, welcoming, and even endorsing in our lives weeks, months, and years down the line. It's not easy in a multi-layered, complex world that we live in to be pure in heart. We can become cynical over situations. Anyone ever become cynical? No, just me. We can become cynical in situations. Don't deceive yourselves this afternoon. 
The reality for us is that the more we spend in God's word and in his presence, the more we give room to him to purify us, to cleanse us, and to move us forward. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now this verse goes far beyond mere conflict resolution. We're living in the middle of a, a pandemic, or certainly coming towards, hopefully, the end of a world pandemic. Life is complicated. There's challenges. Things are unsettling. Things are uncertain. And yet, peacemakers are called for in the kingdom of God. Being a peacemaker means that you intentionally try to make peace. It's going beyond merely maintaining peace. Is that you intentionally, everywhere you go, you try to harbor, foster, and develop peace in every area of society. Peacemakers restore broken relationships. They see division, they see gossip, they see slander, brokenness in the body of Christ. They hate it and they bring peace to the situation. It goes beyond just bringing peace to a situation. Once peace has broken down, you actually cultivate it. It is your starting point, not your false finishing line. And so that's the call for us as individuals. Blessed are the peacemakers, which means that we have to set the spiritual temperature, culture, and atmosphere of every room that we set our feet in. Every conversation that we have, we're looking to bring peace. You know, as Christians, we can argue a lot theologically and in many other areas of life and society, but here's the end goal. We can agree to disagree and still be at peace with one another. Amen? It's so crucial to us. It's proactive and not reactive. Every single day, you and I have an opportunity where we do life, where we go to work, where our family, our friends are, to build healthy, peacemaking, Christ-centered relationships that foster and develop peace in the exact environment that we stand in. And the reality is, if you spend your life doing that, I promise you, heaven alone will be able to tell you the impact that you have made here on this earth because you will realize that you will have brought peace into certain circumstances, families, homes, society, schools that you never even knew about here on earth. We need to offer that by way of our heart. We need to offer that in everything that we carry, which means that we need to avoid being combative in certain scenarios, in certain situations. You know, as, even as Christians, we can become a little bit entrenched, a little bit... Um, hostile, a little bit firm in what we believe, in how we communicate what it is that we believe, that doesn't carry the fragrance of Christ. It doesn't carry the fruits of the Spirit in what we're trying to communicate in our journey. It requires us to continually reflect and to ruminate on how we communicate with the people around us. Peace in the Bible goes far beyond just the mere absence of struggles or conflict, challenges and situations. It means well-being, it gives security, it talks about restoration and reconciliation. And when you find yourself at peace with God, you yourself will become a peacemaker. Amen? Because we know that we've been forgiven and then we start to cultivate those things in the lives of other people that don't yet know Jesus. And so in place of being angry, critical, complex, judgmental, the Spirit of the living God softens our hearts, opens us up to being men and women of conflict resolution, carrying peace, communicating love, 
bringing restoration into every environment. And so the question is, do you know God's peace in your own life today? Have you received his grace and his mercy? Then you would know his ultimate peace, which means that you can enjoy that restored relationship with him. But it goes beyond just you. You're called to be a peacemaker. And so it tells me something. Jesus wants to use you. Amen? Jesus wants to use you right where you are to make peace in certain scenarios. Perhaps it's issues between family members that, where you're not the grieved party or the aggrieved party, but you are called to maybe be in a position to bring peace into that situation. Perhaps there's someone you know that needs forgiveness, but you can come alongside that person, show them the heart, the love, the peace, the grace of God in your own life. Communicate your own challenges, your own testimonies that you have overcome in, and that will catapult that person to step forward, to step out and communicate forgiveness to whoever it is that needs forgiveness in that moment. Trust me, Jesus will use you if you allow him to use you. Instead of moving away from a conflict, I encourage you to move towards it, carrying the peace that God has given you in your own heart, and you will be a vessel used for his ultimate glory. That requires great courage, though, and often it's easier just to keep our place, not to ruffle the feathers of the person next to us, but actually to be a peacemaker, you've got to step out. You've got to step up and you've got to step forward at every opportunity that God gives you because God will always meet you at your point of faith when you step out. And if God has genuinely called you to be a peacemaker in a certain scenario that you know in your heart today is happening in someone's life close to you, know this, God will always give you the resources. So he will give you the words to say, he will create the time, the opportunity, and he will all line it all up by his Holy Spirit. Why? Because when the relationship is restored, when the forgiveness is discharged, when redemption and reconciliation is made available, God will get all the glory in the name of Jesus Christ. And the fourth beatitude for us to explore this afternoon, and the eighth in total, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I mentioned earlier that Jesus doesn't just teach us things. He does them. He lives them out profoundly in his own life. And this definitely applies in our final beatitude. Make no mistake, you will be persecuted for righteousness sake if you choose to live a life that glorifies God in every part of your life. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 tells us this very clearly. Indeed, all, which means that nobody is exempt at this point, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So there is certainty attached to that statement in 2 Timothy 3. And so it's a question for us to consider. And it's the reality that faced every early Christian. You can read it in Hebrews 10. There's story after story of the early Christians. They suffered persecution. They weren't allowed to meet even the way that we are enjoying now. They went to ground and eventually they stopped meeting because of the persecution that happened to them. And so we have to decide how much persecution are we prepared to endure in our own journey, in our own walk. I think it's something that we need to be very, very clear on because often the gap will be, oh, I'm prepared to do anything and everything I can for Jesus Christ. 
And then actually when it comes to the test, the trial, the challenge, we find ourselves falling away, withdrawing the boldness, somehow falling away from our lives when we're called to step out and step forward with courage, boldness, not aggression, but a confidence in who we are and in what God has put in every part of our lives. Now, don't fall into the, step, uh, into the trap, by the way, that if you're not being persecuted, that you're not holy enough. Trust me, the persecutions will come. Yes, when you stand up for God, the enemy will always try and step in. You, I'm sure we all know the phrase, new levels, new devils, right? That's what happens in your journey with Jesus. The more you step up for him, the more the enemy will try and tear us down. But as we think about the light of Christ, when we put Christ at the center, we don't hide away. We allow the glory of God to shine and radiate in and through our lives so that they may see your good works and we can ultimately give glory to our Father in heaven. Now, that's not guaranteeing that persecution will come, but we need to walk in true righteousness in every area of our lives. People recognize and respond to true righteousness. They will always show respect to that, even if they're not a believer. Our own experiences shape and form how much tolerance, how much willingness, how much acceptance we're prepared to have to persecution. Jesus will always encourage you. He will always reassure you. He will always strengthen you when you go through persecution. The goal I find is often is you have to prepare yourself for it. Now, how much, the magnitude, the veracity, the frequency, all of those are up for debate and discussion. But we need to start from the premise that if you are truly living for God, you will suffer persecution. And if you want evidence for it, you only need to turn on your TVs to look at the Christians that can lose their life for just carrying one of these, much less preaching it, right? The Christians that hide in underground churches but still go out and witness. The Christians in the 80-20 window, the 20-80 window that are suffering persecution right around the world for the faith that they have, for the faith that we enjoy and they are willing, they go cheerfully, they go willingly to torture, challenges, ostracized from their families, removed from their homes forcibly. Some of them never seen again on the face of the earth. Great is your reward in heaven. Amen? Verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So just before we continue here, a brief reminder on the structure of the Beatitudes. Over the last couple of weeks, I've deliberately broken them down into the first four and then the second four, very deliberately. If you read verses four and verses eight again, you will see that there are definitive references to righteousness. True righteousness always, always, always revolves around your relationship with Jesus Christ. True righteousness is never done for its own benefit or its own sake. It's always done for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
So when you know that Jesus is speaking to you in this particular portions of scripture, where, where does your mind go? What do we think about? I did a little bit of this myself yesterday evening, and you can be surprised at the answers. Do our minds go to blessed? Yes, I'm going to be blessed. Or do we go, ooh, not sure about that persecution. Do we rejoice or do we look for the reward? That will give you a little bit of an indication about what's at the center and the forefront of your own heart, the motive, the desires behind your decisions, your thoughts, and your actions. Because when we think about the persecution and the evil that may become our portion, that is likely to become our portion, the first thought is, how often, who, when, how much? You know, I can take a little bit if it's on social media and my friend deletes me. Okay, <laughs> I think Jesus is talking a little bit more than that. Are we prepared to genuinely, as he says here, endure on his account? Very interesting words that are used there in verse 11. There's a gap, I believe, between what we may declare today and what may subsequently emerge in the weeks and months that lie ahead as we stand up for Jesus, as we start to live out these Beatitudes. Jesus was a very, very wise man. He knew exactly what lay ahead when he was preaching this sermon to his disciples. He was preparing them. He was giving them the heads up. He was informing them of what was likely to happen to them. He knew all about the persecution, all about the ridicule, all about the, the abuse that he suffered. But he also knew about the reward. He also knew about the joy that was about to follow for him. So my encouragement to you is if you live your life by the design of these Beatitudes, you're going to be slandered, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be challenged, you're going to be abused, you may even be killed. Rejoice. Not because it's something that you would necessarily look forward to, but what it does confirm is that you are living a life solely for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, you are carrying something of Christ everywhere you go. You are completing all the afflictions that Jesus went through, and God himself will reward you. Because the day of accounting is coming. A day when we're going to stand before the Father and give an account of everything that we've done. Did we make the best of every opportunity? Did we find ourselves shying away when we should have stepped up? Did we find ourselves becoming combative over theological arguments because we want to win the argument but lose the soul? Are we genuinely prepared to make peace or is it more important for our pride that we are made right or found to be right in a certain scenario? Are we prepared to walk in that forgiveness that Jesus calls us to? Are we prepared to be merciful? Are we prepared to be compassionate and kind or only on Sundays? <laughs> Remember the context of the Beatitudes. These are quite literally the opening words of Jesus' ministry to his disciples. 
We know that there was a huge crowd there, yet he took them up a mountainside. So he separated the disciples from the crowd. So these words are not for everyone, but they are for you and they are for me, which makes them of significant and central importance to us. He will bring to completion what he has begun in you. Amen? And great will be your reward in heaven. Amen and amen. Praise God. Amen.